0: Hello there. Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk Podcast, a center for human rights podcast series exploring a range of human rights issues through conversations with academics, practitioners, and activists. I am your host, Victoria Amechi. Let's dive in.
1: Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk podcast series organized by the Center for Human Rights, University of Pretoria. My name is Jared Gekombe and I'm your host for today. Uh, we are honored to host Commissioner Lawrence Mute. Commissioner Mute was uh, contracted by the Center for Human Rights and Article 19 Eastern Africa to draft a report on assessing Kenya's compliance with the guidelines on access to information and elections in Africa during the twenty twenty two general elections are uh, held in Kenya. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss the main findings and recommendations of the report. Uh, this conversation is taking place when we are when we are also commemorating the tenth anniversary of the adoption of the African uh, Commission on Human Rights uh, model law on access to information for Africa. Welcome to the podcast, Commissioner Lawrence Mute. Please introduce yourself. Thank you
0: very much. Actually, you've already introduced me. So, my name is Lawrence Mute. I teach at the Faculty of Law of the University of Nairobi. I guess I should say that at the African Commission uh, on Human and People's Rights, where I was a member uh, for just over six years, I also served for the last three of those years as a special rapporteur on freedom of expression and access to information in Africa.
1: Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, since the adoption of the model law on access to information for Africa, what are some of the milestones so far in Africa generally reflecting from your term as a special rapporteur uh, on freedom of expression and access to information in Africa? So, of course,
0: you're speaking about a model law. So the model law in itself was a significant uh, milestone because prior to that, we did not have a standard which could guide African states when they were preparing access to information uh, legislation. So once uh, the model law was in place, then uh, we could push on. In terms of advocating for the enactment of uh, access to information legislation around Africa and uh, we could point to the model law as a guide as a standard which parliaments could use uh, for purposes of preparing legislation and since the adoption of the model law you then were able to almost immediately begin counting the increase of states uh, which Were enacting access to information legislation. I think, by the time I left, or at the the time when I was leaving the the the, the African Commission, uh, we had uh, definitely over twenty, you know, African country states uh, which uh, had uh, enacted uh, access to information legislation. During my time as rapporteur, we also, from time to time, did undertake advocacy visits. Uh, to different countries. And in some of those countries, we would use and we used the standards which were established in in the model law to assess the relevance, to assess the extent to which enacted legislation was actually being implemented. I remember we went to Nigeria for that purpose where we actually issued a report, which I think is still available online, providing guidance to the government of Nigeria on how they could ensure that their act uh, was more effective in terms of uh, what it did. Uh, we also undertook an advocacy visit to Namibia. And as a result of that, definitely not the only, we were not the only ones, but I think as a result of that, uh, the government then in due course also enacted uh, legislation. Okay, thank you so much F, for that. During your tenure
1: as a special rapporteur, you finalized the process of developing the guidelines. On access to information and elections in Africa, which had been initiated by your predecessor. What was the motivation behind these guidelines and what
0: do they entail? So, the guidelines are an interesting uh, tool or instrument or device because the guidelines were focused on the intersection between access to information and participation, and let's say political participation. So, here you're looking at Article 9 of the African Charter and also looking at article 13 of the African charter and the idea was that the way elections happen could be made more efficient more serving for the public if we ensured or if we provided guidance on how the tool of access to information could be utilized uh, to provide uh, more information to the public so in terms of accountability in terms of transparency. So when you look at the whole electoral period, uh, pre-election, post-election definitely, but also during polling day, there are a whole host of things that happen. And the challenge, a big challenge, particularly from an African perspective, is that a lot of what happens may not necessarily be known uh, to the public. So then the guidelines are saying that at one level, we and relevant institutions, including election monitoring bodies, political parties, law enforcement, um, media, that all these extremely key players needed to proactively put out to the public certain information on elections or around elections. And of course, apart from putting that information out proactively, then there are other considerations which need to be uh, kept in mind to ensure the public are in. Okay,
1: thank you so much. The Center has, has, has been assessing state compliance with the guidelines and uh, during the recent elections in Kenya, you were appointed as a consultant in a joint initiative that was undertaken by the Center for Human Rights and at 19 Eastern Africa and you drafted a report in which you assessed Kenya's compliance with the guidelines. Please provide uh, us with a brief background to the study.
0: Yes, indeed. We undertook a study uh, last year, and the study was undertaken around the 2022 general election here in Kenya. Uh, Of course, the general election in itself was quite fascinating because it was always going to be a close-run election because the competitors were extremely, you know, significant. So you had people on both sides, the two uh, political commissions, which turned out to be the key protagonists. And so then ensuring or assessing the extent to which information, the presence of information, or indeed the absence of information played a factor, one or the other, in ensuring that the elections were free and fair was an important thing to do. And so that's what we did. In the course of uh, a couple of months, uh, when I took this study, we were assessing the performance of electoral stakeholders in the proactive disclosure of election related information as established in the guidelines, uh, the guidelines on access to information and elections in Africa, which are the guidelines, as we've just said, that uh, the Commission adopted in 2017. And so, We are looking at the election management bodies here. It's basically the Independent Elections and Boundaries Commission, the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, and also the the registrar of political parties. We're also looking at uh, how uh, political parties were managing issues of information, uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, political parties, uh, civil society organizations, Observers, election, election observers, also media, and also agencies, or which regulate media, and so on the basis then of our assessments and looking at the different guidelines, we then made um, findings, uh, and we also made recommendations. Looking forward on what else needs to happen around uh, elections. Okay.
1: In Kenya, what is the, you know, the access to information legal framework?
0: Actually, I must say, the legal framework is fairly robust here in Kenya. So remember, I, at the beginning, mentioned that there were many states around Africa which did not have access to information uh, legislation. Now, for Kenya, one has to begin with the the Constitution. And so, you look at Article 35 of the Constitution, which establishes a basic a framework within which access to information issues can be can be dealt with. So in there, you have the standard, the, the norms, the key norms. For example, guaranteeing every citizen the right of access to information, uh, which is held by the state. Also, that article establishes actually what you could call a proactive disclosure requirement because it requires the state to publish and publicize any important information affecting the nation. And you have a number of other guarantees, which are again are established in the constitution. There are many other laws. I think I should just say that in 2016, finally, Kenya also enacted an access to information act. This something which we had been lobbying as Kenyan civil society for many years, as long ago as, you know, 2005, 2003. I remember discussions on on this particular, on access to information. So this eventually was enacted in 2016. We still had issues with uh, certain important regulations not being in place, but otherwise we, as I said, have a legislative framework. We also have an institutional framework because the Access to Information Commissioner is part of the Commission on Administrative Justice, so there is a Commissioner uh, you know who is housed in the uh, Commission on Administrative Justice, which is established under the Constitution. So, I mean, I could mention many more acts, but I, I don't think I should. The point really is that at least there is a minimum... The key question always then is one of implementation. To what extent are the laws in place being implemented? And obviously, I mean, it's arguable. Yes, I think that's, uh, that is sufficient.
1: Now, in your study, you know, and, uh, and from the guidelines... And from what we have mentioned, there are many stakeholders that were involved in the elections. Are we able to assess how each of these performed during the 2022 general elections? We can start from the election management body, the IBC What was the assessment of the IBC's performance?
0: So the IABC was assessed under many headings you know one needs to look at the guidelines themselves what you see is that the guidelines cover a broad range of issues and uh, the guidelines cover the operations of, of the iebc the guidelines cover the kind of work which the iebc did around preparing for the elections also during elect- polling day and uh, after uh, the polls so i could not begin to give you a comprehensive picture and that's why that that's why it's important that the report is being launched because then one would be able to look at that the whole report but just to say that the key one of the key highlights around the iebc is to say that a lot of information was actually provided proactively. So when you looked at the website of the commission, you found a lot of information at an operational level in terms of its operations, in terms of what it was doing around the elections. And the IABC also, again, for example, would hold regular press briefings on uh, you know, different issues. And sometimes the chairperson would speak to the country on particular issues. I think the question would be whether that was done in a sequence way, or whether it was done in an ad hoc way. And then also whether the information, for example, which was set out uh, on the website, um, was configured in a way that would be easily understandable, easily accessible to the public. So in the study, we make findings around that. Uh, you know, the fact that there are certain things which the IEBC could have done uh, better. And For example, one of the recommendations which we make is that the IEBC moving forward should create, keep, organize, and maintain their records in a manner that facilitates access to information. For example, we are concerned that they ensure that platforms, the platforms on which they disseminate information... Uh, including their websites, their social media platforms are accessible uh, to everybody. Uh, you know, in, including uh, you know uh, people who or groups which are marginalised. So again, here we, for example, be talking about people with disabilities. Also, one of the recommendations which we make is that the IEBC should adopt and implement flexible, proactive disclosure arrangements that enable access to information without the need. For individual applications, as I said, there was a lot of material which was there, but still there were gaps which we identified, and so then that would mean that you'd have them to apply to the IEBC, and you did not necessarily always know that you are going to uh, get a, a, a feedback from the IEBC. Again, speaking about the IEBC, there was a lot of information around things like budgets, the kinds of budgets which. Uh, the hard which the, the, and the difficulties you're encountering in terms of budgets. But again, you never quite got the sense that you had the full uh, picture. And that's why, again, one of our other recommendations is that the IBC moving forward needs to ensure that it is providing proactively accurate and updated information on their budgets and also, again, on their sources of funding. Perhaps I can give you an example now looking at the office of the registrar of political parties where one of our findings and therefore recommendations was the need for the orpp to provide details of applications made by political parties uh, for registration as participants in the electoral process now you may think that's a small thing so what happened was ultimately you could see that these were the number of political parties which had applied successfully, but you would not necessarily know how many political parties may have applied, and for whatever reasons, then they were declined, you know, the application. So that sort of information, again, needed to be out there on the face of the record. Around the elections themselves, so the pre-election period, again, lots of information provided by the IBC, but there are certain important information which you wouldn't know, or you did not have. So for example, just think about, we had a diaspora voting, a diaspora voting. So there are people from the diaspora who could vote in a number of listed countries. So that was good. There was a number of clear listed countries, I think just over 10, uh, where one could vote uh, in the diaspora. But it was never quite made clear for example how votes the ballots the ballot boxes from the diaspora would be stored so the storage the security of the ballot boxes uh, of diaspora voters uh, until the general count itself so how would those be stored information such as that would be important because you never know they could actually make the difference uh, particularly depending on uh, how competitive the, the presidential election was, because they could only, the diaspora could only vote in the presidential election. So I do not try to go through the whole the seven or so sectors. What I would say is that in overall terms, the sense we got from the study was that there was a conscious effort to provide information by the IEBC by law enforcement agencies, even by regulatory agencies. But um, nonetheless, there were significant gaps. And so moving forward, it is important that uh, then on the basis of the substantive report and the findings and the recommendations which we make or which we have made, that uh, then necessary changes get made so that uh, we can have better elections in future. Thank you for that.
1: A follow-up question. I think one of the... Outstanding issues from the elections was the fallout of the commissioners. And one of the issues they were raising was that even when ballot papers arrived in Kenya, they were not aware. Are you able to comment
0: mm-hmm. on that? Yes. So for the methodology we our study, we used a lot of secondary sources. And so indeed, the report includes a secondary sources even before the polls themselves or before the fallout which actually noted that there were certain surprises that were happening uh, during that, uh, that that period. So there were occasions, as we have recorded in the report, when, uh, for example, uh, some commissioners would indicate that certain things had happened, uh, which they did not know about. But I said that we were able to pick from secondary sources. So when then commissioners made that claim, it wasn't very surprising because it's something which we had caught in the secondary material. Maybe you have mentioned about the
1: ORPP, the Registrar Political mm. Parties,
0: mm.
1: as one of the uh, regulatory bodies. Mm. Uh, maybe Are you able to comment about the election observers and maybe the civil society, their performance in these uh, elections? So if we speak
0: about civil society, what we found was that quite quickly, civil society established networks to observe or monitor the election. And in fact, I should say, I'm saying quickly, quite quickly established network. Uh, Actually, a lot of those networks have been in place for a long time. So for example, if you look at ELOB, the election uh, observation group, that actually has been operational for the last over 10 years. And so what I think is significant is that one has to distinguish between election monitoring and all observation. And Kenyan civil society is clear that what you need to do is election monitoring, which means that over a period of time, sometimes as many as a couple of years, you're actually looking at the preparations for the elections. And as you go into the pre electoral period, you're not simply aiming to report what you find for purposes of observation. You are actually Finding ways of intervening so that any challenges you have found with the elections can be remedied before the election. So you see, that is the essence of election monitoring. That's a distinction between election monitoring and uh, poll observation. As opposed to uh, people who fly in one or two days before the election, they go, they observe the polls. And then they say, A, B, C, D was wrong. You see, you can't, you can't determine the situation and then because it's too late, you're just reporting what you saw. So I think that is what is significant around uh, civil society and the observation which they did. Now, when you look at the guidelines, uh, because I think it's so good to be self-reflective. And so one of the challenges to civil society is that they also need to be a little more reflective. So that uh, under the guidelines, for example, If you are an NGO or a network and you're doing election monitoring or indeed election observation, you also need to be accountable and transparent. You need to tell us who are you as an organization, who are on your board as an organization, where do you get your funding and how are you using that funding? Has the funding been audited, et cetera, et cetera? And so we did make findings in that regard. There were some NGOs, which were fairly uh, accountable and transparent but we also did find that there are some others who did not um, proactively uh, provide the information which they would be required under the under the guidelines
1: you take it back to the political parties as the key players in the elections how do you assess their performance in terms of disclosing information
0: you know uh, political parties ultimately, are vehicles which are constructed for purposes of winning elections. At at least that's how you'd see them here in Kenya. So the difficulty you encounter quite quickly is that uh, uh, many political parties have a relatively short shelf life. So they get formed just before an election, and quite often they get dissolved or at least their character changes dramatically after an, an election. They strike new alliances, and sometimes they get dissolved into those new into new alliances, etc., etc., or into new political parties. So that I think is one thing which one has to keep in mind. I think political parties tended to be quite pragmatic in the way they shared uh, information. So what you had were political parties, usually with a level of website and providing certain information uh, on the websites, but also quite pragmatically, specifically declining to provide other information. So when you look at the guidelines, one of the requirements is that actually political parties should provide lists of party agents, people who are going to campaign for them. And when I had discussions with the political parties on that particular issue, they told me, get serious. But I think they did the bare minimum a lot of the time. Uh, because then their focus was on winning uh, the election.
1: Commissioner, maybe I can take you back to the issue of the media. You know, one of the issues during the campaign was uh, whether the media was independent. Uh, You know, we had some media houses that were purported to be supporting one uh, Mm -hmm. one side. Maybe you can comment on that in relation to how they avail
0: information to the public. I think that... Generally, it was, how do I put this? On the face of it, it was clear that certain key interlocutors or leaders of particular media houses preferred one side or another side. Um, Whether that obviously translated into media or particular media um being partisan is arguable. I think there the a sense in which when you looked anecdotally at what was happening you might almost say that there were certain uh, broadcasters I think it was not overt I mean too obvious but you could still say that uh, perhaps there are certain media houses which you know tended to be aligned to one side or another. We did not do an analysis on a basis, for example, of a quantitative analysis. We didn't, because we didn't do a quantitative study. So we didn't, we did not do a quantitative analysis, uh, for example, which then uh, assessed uh, the dots, the commas, the post tops in, in that regard. The, the other challenge is, I think, the distinction between legacy media, what you would call legacy media, and how they approach the elections and uh, social media, and again, how uh, they approached the election. So classically, legacy media had their heyday a while ago. Now legacy media, I think, have to contend with the fact that if they are not addressing particular headlines, the likelihood is that those headlines will be covered by social media. So that indeed was a great challenge. And of course, then there were difficulties which we found in respect of uh, social media particularly issues such as uh, uh, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation so these are things which happened Uh, so very consciously and in the study we highlight many instances of disinformation where information which was patently wrong which was not correct which was incorrect was actually consciously shared in the public spaces, uh, using social media outlets. So again, that was, a, that was something which we encountered and which we saw, and which I think we're seeing need, needs to be addressed. Thank you. Generally in Kenya, uh, from, from
1: the study that you conducted, what are some of the specific recommendations and actions that you suggest in the report to enhance Kenya's compliance
0: with, in, for future elections? we make guidance specific recommendations. I have alluded to some of those, so I'll not go back to those. I think generally, first, it is important that we go back to basics. So whether the different electoral stakeholders that we affirm, that they affirm the importance of access to information and that access to information is important for purposes of transparency. But you know, transparency without accountability is neither here nor there. So it's about transparency. And then also you merge, you mesh that into questions of accountability. And remember, obligations around access to information are normative. Uh, They are by law. So it's not just about, uh, you know, encouraging or persuading. So whether it's the IEBC or the ORPP or indeed the appointing authority, the president and parliament, that needs to be uppermost. And number two, I think that even as the IEBC and others are preparing for future elections, there needs to be conscious conversations around access to information and the guidelines therefore can be an important and essential are an essential tool for that purpose. So it's important that IBC and others um, speak about the guidelines. It's important that all players, because the state, Kenya, has an obligation, for example, to disseminate the guidelines. That again, these guidelines are disseminated, uh, that conversations happen around that uh, for purposes of preparing for the future. Um, It's important that uh, we go back to the discussion on how we ensure that a key media platform, whether legacy or social, uh, are more accountable around how elections are used, how used or abused or how media is used or abused uh, in respect of uh, propounding certain electoral uh, narratives. So I think it's important that that discussion does happen. Just specifically, one finding I think I should mention is around election financing We didn't have a law in that regard around election uh, financing. So again, it's important that that gets put in place. The question is how is that relevant for purposes of the current discussion? It's relevant because then we can also provide the IBC and others will be able to provide more information to Kenyans about who is financing which elections and to what extent, to what tune. So then we're able to figure what are the, or at least suppose what are the interests then that uh, may be behind you know those who are funding a particular presidential, parliamentary, or even governorship, governorship races. So I think those are some of the, the recommendations. Uh, I would wish to I would wish to highlight.
1: Thank you. As we conclude, what are some of the things that you can mention that other countries can learn from Kenya? Considering in Kenya has had the latest elections, one of the latest elections. What are some of the things that you could mention that other African countries can learn from Kenya's elections in terms of improving compliance with the guidelines?
0: One thing which was very significant, particularly in light of what has happened or has been happening in other countries, one of the special rapporteurs, On freedom of expression and access to information. I used to raise concerns quite often on internet shutdown. You know, sometimes during elections, they shut them down completely or they throttle them. They do all manner of things to slow down the internet so that then the electorate, the public generally will not be able to communicate or communicate effectively. It was extremely significant and commendable that Kenya did not do that. So throughout the elections period, the polls period, we would not have conscious shutdowns of the Internet. So that is commendable. That was extremely commendable. And that is something which would commend to the rest of Africa. Because unfortunately, we still have too many instances around the continent. I'm sure including, if I recall correctly, recently Zimbabwe, where this sort of thing is or has been happening. And it's important that uh, it should not happen. Remember, the best way of managing potential conflict is by ensuring continuous information flow. The moment you shut down channels of information, what you then do is you allow false narratives to spread and when you shut down the internet even then when you want to countermand false narratives you can't because you shut down the media which you have used to communicate your messages so i think it's really important that this happens i asked uh, the zimbabwean minister when he came to present his state report at the african commission in 2019 or 2020, you should not use a hammer to kill a mosquito. So if you think that the content on the internet or in social media might include some content which is false, then you need to address that as opposed to then shutting down the hole. That doesn't make sense and in any case, it's a unlawful because it's not allowed under the African Charter. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. I can give you a few minutes to say your concluding remarks. I obviously look forward to the launch, uh, which is happening uh, next week. I believe that the Center and I should commend the Center and also Article 19 for their work on Kenya. And uh, I believe that uh, more studies like this will be happening uh, in countries where elections are taking place. and. I think it's important that uh, we disseminate the guidelines around Africa more proactively. So I would call on all who are involved to, to do that, because I think the guidelines are a useful tool for purposes of ensuring that elections are transparent and accountable. Thank you. With those remarks,
1: Commissioner, we have come to the end of the podcast. I want to thank you for the opportunity to once again share with us your thoughts and uh, for joining us in this uh, podcast, which has really enriched our understanding of the issues dealing with access to information and elections in Africa and in the context of Kenya, where you did the study. So thank you so much, Commissioner. That marks the end of this podcast. Uh, Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Asante. You have just listened to the Africa Rides Talk
1: podcast.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channels, social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. Thank
1: you for listening.